how old does something have to be for it to be on your museum's radar? A moment. Literally a moment. Welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, where gaming is for everyone. Join us as we expand the boundaries of the gaming community. Hello and welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, episode number 85 for Wednesday, January 9th, 2019. Happy New Year! I'm so excited to be back with another great episode of Polygamer because today we're talking with somebody who I've met many times at the Strong Museum of Play in Rochester, New York. I have donated many various gaming artifacts there and I'm glad to know that those items will be preserved and made available for years to come along with hundreds if not thousands of of other artifacts from throughout gaming history. One of the people making all that possible is today's guest, curator Shannon Simons. Hello, Shannon. Hi, thanks so much for having me and, and also for all those wonderful donations you've been giving us over the years. You know, many of them are tchotchkes that I receive from game publishers during my time as a member of the gaming press, attending E3, etc. And they may be one-of-a-kind items that would just seem a shame to put on eBay and just have somebody else sit on. So I'm glad to be able to give them to the Strong Museum. Well, we're glad to give him a good home. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So there are lots of things I want to talk to you about today. I want to talk to you about your career, about the Strong Museum of Play, and also about your latest gaming exhibit. But let's give all that some context by starting at ground zero. What is the Strong Museum of Play? So we are actually a very, very unique museum. Um, we are the only museum in the world dedicated to the history and study of play that is also um, a collections-based museum. Um, we own and care for the world's most comprehensive collection of playthings, so that includes things like dolls, toys, board games, of course, video games, and also we have a, a huge archive that supports um, those artifacts um, with other historical uh, materials related to play. We're up to um, about uh, half a million artifacts as of the end of, of last year. We keep growing through through donors and um, through support, and we are just really happy to be a home for basically the history of the way people play. Wow, a half a million. How many of those are on display to the public at any given time? A very small amount. Um, I would estimate probably somewhere around 10%. And what is happening with the other 90%? So uh, we have several very large um, storage areas, uh, two, two extraordinarily large ones down in um, both our basement and upstairs on our third floor. Um, so guests don't usually get to see behind those scenes. But we also have uh, several smaller areas. We have some cold storage uh, specific to things like paper. Um, and of course, we have our library and archives, which is another source of hundreds of thousands of documents. And those are documents that you make available to researchers? Yes. Um, both our, our library and archives and our, our collection storage areas are open to researchers by appointment. Sometimes people just make appointments because they're doing their own work in the Rochester area. But we also have fellowship programs and we do have researchers coming to us from all around the world, um, coming to say do work on their PhD dissertation or perhaps their professors looking for new classroom material or looking to publish um, for maybe an upcoming book or a journal article. Um, so we have lots of people from a variety of backgrounds. I believe I interviewed one of those researchers. Jimmy Maher of the Digital Antiquarian came all the way from Europe to look at ah. the history of gaming. 
Yes, yes, that was wonderful. Yeah, he has quite the very academic website where he goes through the history of gaming year by year. And he says that some documentation that he wouldn't have found anywhere else in the world was right there in your archives. Yeah, and that's actually what we really hope to provide for our researchers is basically, you know, you can come here and see things that you can't see anywhere else, you know, repositories of of game design documents and company records that they're truly one of a kind. And this is the only place you can find them. Now, why do people have to travel from all around the world to the strong when those documents could, for example, perhaps be digitized and made available online? So there's a couple different scenarios with that. In some cases, um, it's something that we're working on. There are certainly some things that we're trying to get grants to fund digitization. Um, Something that we're actually working on this year, for example, is um, we did receive a grant to digitize something called Playthings Magazine, which is basically the, the biggest repository of the toy industry and how they sell things. Um, it goes back for, um, I think it, it was around 100 years old. And we have the most complete collection anywhere in the world. So we actually just received funding to do that, which we're very excited about. Um, so some of it's just honestly a funding problem. Other times we do run into copyright issues. So for example, we do have um, printed source code from people like Carol Shaw. And um, we just do not have the licensing to be able to reproduce that in a digital format. We don't own the copyright. And um, even Carol doesn't own the copyright because it it, um, belongs to Atari or to Activision. Um, So in some cases, we simply just don't have the right to do it. Now, you mentioned Carol and the source code that she donated. Do many of these artifacts you receive, your half a million collection, does this come from people who have been in the game industry and from their own personal collections like that? Um, So we actually do have a large number of archival collections directly from people in the gaming industry. So Carol Shaw is one of them. Uh, Jordan Mechner, uh, so for P- Prince of Persia fans, we are the the largest repository of information from the Atari Coin Op division. So things like uh, sketches and design documents and corporate records. Ken and Roberta Williams donated um, their archive from Sierra. So some of them include, you know, handwritten scripts or sketches, as well as corporate records and things like that. So things like that, we we absolutely tend to get from people who are in the gaming industry. Things that are more three-dimensional, so games themselves or merchandising related to them, sometimes those will come from people in the industry. Uh, for example, Megan Geyser, um, who was a formal, former CEO of Her Interactive, when she donated um, archival papers uh, she also donated a large number of software, a uh, large number of Nancy Drew games to go along with that. So sometimes we get software from from the gaming companies, um, but other times we just get them from donors. Sometimes it's literally people cleaning out their attic. Um, other times it's it's people who just really want to give their older games a good home and know that we're going to preserve them for the long haul. And sometimes it's you bidding on eBay? Yes, absolutely. It is sometimes me bidding on eBay. Obviously, we try not to do that because we have number number one, we have a a pretty uh, a tight collections budget, so we have to be very careful on what we choose to spend our money on. But also because um, you know, getting into a bidding war is sometimes just uh, 
there are a lot of collectors out there who will always have more money than we will. So if somebody listening to this podcast want to donate some of their collection, what is it that you're looking for? So for people who want to donate, we look at a couple of different factors. Um, part of it is is rarity. So if you have, I'm just going to throw this out there because it's something I'm always looking for. If you have a Calabeth and you would like to donate a Calabeth to me, I would love you forever if you would do that. Um, so sometimes it's just games that are extraordinarily rare. Sometimes it's things that we just are um, looking to close gaps in our collection. So in general, um, older PC games on, you know, the the floppy disks, those are always good because even if we have them, the media is so at risk that, you know, we might have two copies of something, maybe one stops working, maybe one develops bit rot, and we're, we're actively trying to preserve these and to migrate them onto more stable formats. But, um, you know, sometimes we just get there too late. So in in those cases, even multiple copies can only be a good thing. So Akalabeth being Richard Garriott's first game for the Apple II, a precursor to Ultima, you don't yes. have a copy? We do not have a copy, no. <laughs> there are only probably, what, 20 floating around Ziploc bags somewhere? Yeah, I mean, you'd think we could get our hands on one of them. Right, you know. <laughs> Um, so, so yes, um, if anyone is listening, would like to give me one of those, that would be awesome. Now you said that sometimes you just get there too late and things are degraded. You know, the lifespan of floppy disks, they shouldn't work anymore. And yet many of them still do. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe this is personally motivated, but I've had things removed from my collection against my will, whether it's through parents who just want to clean the house or you lend something to a friend and it never comes back. And mm -hmm. 30 years later, I'm still I'm still heartbroken over these things. How do you get over showing up a minute too late? So part of that is the nature of museum work in general, whether it's it's digital media or it's, you know, someone working with ancient Roman artifacts. That's the nature of the beast. You're always going to get to something too late. You know, we there's a joke in sort of the industry that we're all still mourning the burning of the Library of Alexandria, like some things you just never get over, right? Part of that is just the nature of the game, and you learn to accept it over time. Um, the one the one thing that's actually really helped um, us as a team, and and certainly me personally, is that we didn't go into this when we when we first started collecting um, electronic media, especially. We went into this knowing that we couldn't save everything. Um, it was just going to be impossible. So the best the best way to get around that is basically to try to save an example or sample representation of as much as we can. So we can't save every single you know five and a quarter inch floppy disk, but we can save enough so that historians a hundred years from now will have a really good idea about what types of games were available on that media and how those played and the 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 enjoyment that people got out of it. Maybe we have enough documentation for some of those games to show how they were made, how people developed them so even if we can't save every game, we can save enough to say this is what that generation of games was like. And that's that's a really big help. One thing Jason Scott once said is that the hardest part of preserving history is being there when it happens. Yes. How old does something have to be for it to be on your museum's radar? A moment. Literally a moment. 
we we don't um th- that's actually something that is is a very interesting part of being a museum of play is that time we we work with such timeless things like like play is so timeless that it it doesn't matter to us it's significant whether it's play from 100 years ago or it's play that was just developed literally a minute ago because the way people play is is so similar across different forms that it just it doesn't matter to us. So when people come to us and say, why why is there video game in a museum? Video games aren't old. And we're just like, well, they may not be old, but they're significant. So especially significant to the way people play. So we know the games that are coming out now are significant, but it's too soon to say if they are historically significant. For example, there are hundreds of Steam games coming out every week. There are new Switch and PS4 games coming out in physical form every week and every month. How do you know which ones to hold on to? So that's a really good point. And the short answer, of course, is that we don't. I mean, we don't know what's going to become the next Fortnite, you know. Um, that's just time, time does tell that. So part of it is, is luck. Um, usually, so when a new system comes out, because every, because it is expensive, we're not going to go out and, for example, buy, like when the Switch came out, we didn't go out and buy a Switch and every single launch game. We went out and bought a Switch and bought, I think it was like four games. So part of it's a guess as to what we think might be the most likely. And you can do that sort of by examining trends, you know, what's popular, what's not, you know, if it's Mario, it's probably going to be timeless. You're going to want a copy of every Mario game if you can. Um, But, you know, we are here for the long haul. So if we do guess wrong, I mean, there usually is the opportunity to, to go back and get it, especially because things are much more mass produced now than they used to be. Now, obviously, some things are collectible collector's items and if you don't get it right when they come out then you know you're you're kind of out of luck um, or you end up paying an exorbitant price for it Um, so part of that is a risk but really we just do the best we can and again focus on that sort of representative sample rather than being hyper focused on individual titles, especially when we don't quite know the answer to that yet. Now, libraries keep detailed usage statistics about their books. And if a book is not historically significant and hasn't been lent out in a certain amount of time, they put it out for sale in order to make room for new books. Do you ever deaccession any items in your collection? Yes, actually, we um, we do have a very formalized deaccession process. Um, we usually go through deaccessioning three to four times a year for a for a museum a credit an accredited museum as we are um it takes a lot of there are a lot of steps to go through it so you know a curator will have to make that call and say okay this no longer fits with our mission um so or it's been damaged over time or you know whatever the whatever the, the, the main reason is, they'll put that forth. Then um, a deaccessioning committee, which is basically all of the curators and um, a couple of vice presidents uh, come together and review the list. And if we see something that we think, you know, eh, we really ought to hang on to that, you know, we can sort of single that out. Once we approve everything, then it has to go to a subcommittee of our board of directors and then the full board of directors. 
Um, and then we are able to either offer the objects to other um, museums, other accredited institutions, um, either as trade objects or for sale, or we can put them up at um, certain types of nationally recognized auction houses. So for example, we can auction off at Sotheby's in New York. And then any money we receive from that has to go directly back into the collection. It can't be used to pay my salary. It can't be used to keep the lights on. Um, it has to go directly back into funding new collections for the museum. So I'll never be bidding on strong museum artifacts on eBay. That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> so tourists may not be able to get their hands on your artifacts once they're deaccession, but surely they would want to go to the museum and get their hands on them, even if they're not researchers. What sort of attractions do you have for typical visitors to your museum who are interested in the history of gaming? Is it a, a more of a hands-on place? Yes. Yeah, so as a museum of play, um, you know, one of the things that we focus on is, is actual physical playing. So all of our exhibits follow what we sort of call this three-pronged approach of um, interpretation, um, artifacts, and interactivity. So uh, every exhibit is going to have some kind of artifact, which is usually um, behind, you know, some sort of glass. Those are the museum's actual physical objects that you would be able to touch. Um, those would have interpretation along with them. So some kind of label or description of what they are. And then each exhibit also has interactivity. So some way to, even if you're not physically interacting with those museum objects, some way to sort of play out whatever those objects are representing. So for example, if you're in, this is non-video game related, but just as an example, um, our Imagination Destination um, exhibit, which is all about pretend play. We have costumes and masks, you know, from the 80s, those old plastic Halloween costumes that were so um, cute and now look really scary. <laughs> um, but then we also have a stage, so you can dress up and pretend to be, you know, a theater actor. Our electronic games exhibits are actually slightly different. It's one of the few places where you can interact with actual museum objects. Um, all of our arcade machines that are out are actually accessioned objects. Um, and we made that decision based on a couple of, of criteria. We have what we call a restricted collection, which are games that are either considered too too rare. There's just too few of them. Um, so for example, computer space, there were only a couple hundred of those made. Um, that was the very first um, commercially produced arcade game. That's always going to be behind glass because if, if um, it gets damaged, those are really, really almost impossible to replace. But say something like a Pac-Man, those are very readily accessible. Um, if something happens, we would be able to replace it fairly easily. And Games in particular are meant to really be played. Um, a, a shut off arcade machine isn't really that interesting to look at as an artifact. So we do have uh, an arcade conservation technician whose entire job, which is going to sound really awesome because it is, is basically to keep all of our arcade machines running, but also follow um, museum level conservation principles to keep them in as original condition as possible. 
That does sound awesome, but it also sounds nearly impossible as a lot of those parts are no longer manufactured, and even if they can be 3D printed, it's no longer original. That's correct. So we do have several suppliers that um, that's sort of what they do is they 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 make or or sell um, original parts to to machines. And we keep them going for as long as we can. But that is a big concern. I mean, for example, CRT monitors are not being manufactured anymore. And we've got a stash of them that we can use in arcade machines when the screens stop working. But eventually they're going to go away. And that's actually a huge, a huge quandary for us is do we replace it with a flat screen monitor and let people continue to play it? Or once that game is gone and we can't find a suitable monitor replacement for it, do we simply just let it stay in its original state but unplayable? And we haven't gotten to that point yet, um, but we will. And it's a question we're going to have to answer. (laughs) it's, It's sort of depressing to know that all these things are fading away. It really is. You know, it's um, and so many things are becoming digital, um, you know, which is even in some cases it makes preservation easier because you only have to worry about the actual files rather than, okay, I have to preserve the electronic component. I have to preserve the case. I have to preserve the manual. But on the other hand, digital distribution makes things so fleeting that literally if you blink, you miss it. Well, I feel great now. Thanks. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> no worries. But you do have you do have some exhibits that are very encouraging and very optimistic, including your latest one, the Women in Games exhibit. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. So that's um, that's been a project that's been near and dear to my heart for a long time, and I'm so grateful that we were finally able to really put that together. Um, basically, in um, in 2017, uh, the museum launched our Women in Games initiative, and basically, what that is is it was a desire to tell this story of women in all facets of the game industry. So obviously a lot of it, that's going to focus on the women who, who create the games, um, whether that's developing and programming or contributing music or perform the artwork, um, all of those aspects that go into making a game, women have been doing it basically since the beginning. So um, to tell those stories, to tell the stories of the the women who are playing the game. And also uh, the exhibit touches uh, briefly on the the representation of women in games through uh, the characterization. And it's, um, it's a tough story to tell sometimes, um, partially just because um, the, the records are not there. And, and quite frankly, there just simply aren't that numerically speaking, there are fewer women making games than there are uh, men making games. And so just finding them in some cases was difficult. But I'm, I'm so proud of what we've accomplished um, and what the institution has put together. And I think we came away with a really strong exhibit. When you say there are fewer women making games, do you find that to be more true the further back in history you go? You know, it's funny because if so, if you look at um, the predecessor to to gaming, you know, if you if you look at um, actual like typing and and things like that, you're looking at something that was very heavily a female dominated job. Data entry was considered uh, heavily 
a, a heavily uh, feminized job. But then once it started moving towards things like gaming and entertainment, um, women were sort of pushed out in favor of their male colleagues. And even to this point, um, most statistics will tell you that only 22 or 23% of people in game development right now identify as female. So of that minority percentage, similar question to I asked earlier about games, how do you choose which ones to feature in an exhibit? So that was really, really hard. The first thing we did when, when, we, when we started the exhibit was to decide how do we want to display this? Are we going to go chronologically? You know, what format are we going to take? And um, I sort of decided early on that what I wanted to do was, was divide it up by sort of uh, position. So, for example, we have um, a segment on developers and programmers. Sometimes that was a little bit easy um, for us to focus on on bigger names. So I've already mentioned Carol Shaw. She was the first widely recognized um, female programmer for um, a major uh, video game distributor, in this case, Atari and Activision. Um, in terms of game design, you really can't sort of beat Roberta Williams and the work she did for Sierra and specifically on graphic adventures. So there's big names like that. We have a section on audio where we focus on uh, composers, music composers, as well as voice actresses. Um, again, you know, you sort of start with the bigger names. So Yoko Shimomura, who um, who's done a lot of um, RPG games with with Square with Square Enix. Uh, she's probably most famous for Kingdom Hearts, and um, also recently did Final Fantasy XV. Um, Jennifer Hale, who is again very very widely recognized as the voice of the female Commander Shepard in Mass Effect. So just sort of throwing names out like that. These are people who, if you're in the game industry, you're going to know who these women are or at the very least have played the games that they're associated with. So that was sort of our base. And then um, I kind of looked for women whose names people weren't going to recognize. So, uh, you know, who are some of the, um, actually, actually, you know, um, artists. Artists were, were some of the um, the more difficult ones to find. Um, just because, A, sometimes it's hard to actually find credits for artists in general, which I I suppose I'd never specifically looked for them before. But in some cases, artists just really aren't credited that much. So um, we discovered um, uh, people like Rieko Kodama, who actually worked on some pretty big names for Sega, like Fantasy Star. And um, she actually did in the environments for Sonic and for Alex Kidd. So trying to pull people in with names that they're going to recognize, but then also use that opportunity to educate them with um, names that they are not going to be so familiar with. And you do that through a variety of informational displays as well as interactive opportunities to try their games? Right. So so each of those segments um, that, are, that are broken up um, will have some kind of display. It'll have um, interpretation in terms of, you know, maybe talking about some of some of the women that I mentioned, and then there'll be um, an interactive portion. So another se uh, segment that I hadn't mentioned before is writing. So one of the women that we featured very heavily in the writing section was Amy Hennig, who is um, extraordinarily well known for her work, both as writer and creative director on the Uncharted series. 
So we have some some background on her. We have uh, you know some artifacts out, and then we actually um, pulled out. In this particular case, we we went low tech, and we have um, an old mechanical typewriter where people can sit down and write the beginning to their own video games, and then submit them in a little Dropbox for the uh, the section on uh, de- designers and programmers. We have. Um, uh, centipede arcade machine out for people to play an original centipede um, in honor of Donna Bailey, who um, who was a programmer on that. And do I understand that if visitors think to look up, they might see something? Yes, that was something that we wanted to do in in the space where um, where we are. We've we found in that particular exhibit space, the ceilings lend themselves well in general to things hanging down. And um, in this particular case, each segment is is divided by a pillar. And on that pillar, um, you'll see um, it's not actually glass, but um, it's it's the image of um, it's it's plexiglass, but a, basically a glass ceiling being broken through. I love it. I love the symbolism. That's fantastic. Yeah. We were really <laughs> happy with that. <laughs> So you mentioned several of the women who are in your exhibit. It sounds like you're continuing to expand that exhibit based on a recent email exchange you and I had about former Polygamer guest Bahia Khan. Yes, yes. One of the things that I was disappointed about when we ended up at the end of our exhibit and um, and also with um, the, the panel of, of guests that we had, which was absolutely phenomenal. We had 10 women here. Um, up on stage talking about their experiences. And it was it was absolutely fantastic. But the one thing that disappointed me at the end was that it was very, very heavily dominated by um, Caucasian women. And that's something that I felt, especially when we're talking about um, you know, we're already talking about sort of a minority in terms of women in gaming. We really need to expand that intersectionality. Um, so not only did I find um, Bahia's game After Hours incredibly fascinating when I was reading about it, just from the serious nature of it, you know, being being about bipolar disorder and things like that. I was also um, extremely interested in, you know, here she is. She's from South Africa. She's a person of color. Um, she is going to have a much different um, history in terms of working in the game industry than than even um, her her um, white contemporaries, and that's um, a, a side of this story that I I'm really really focused on improving this year. So your exhibit is still evolving, even though it's open. You're still adding new aspects to it. So this particular exhibit is is set. Basically, um, we would only change something if if there was actually like something physically wrong with it. But um, this exhibit is temporary. It's open through the spring. Um, it'll come down before our our summer exhibit opens in June. And um, but we are in the midst of a, a 100,000 square foot expansion to the museum. And that expansion is basically going to be the new home of our International Center for the History of Electronic Games, um, which I know is a mouthful, which is why we call it iCheck. But so that's going to be a new home of all aspects of that, of the World Video Game Hall of Fame, of our our gaming collection, and also 
for women in games. So by the time that opens in 2021, um, my goal is to be able to have um, an even wider range of artifacts that we can put out for that and that exhibit and, and those areas would remain permanent. That would be awesome. I would love to see more space dedicated to the history of gaming. Yes, I'm very excited about it. You mentioned the panel with which this exhibit opened. Was that recorded? I mean, I, you're a museum above history. I have to imagine it was recorded. Yes. Um, so we, we streamed it on our Twitch channel, which is um, Museum of Play. And we also have um, a, a YouTube channel associated with the museum, um, also under the Museum of Play. And um, what we did there was the, the panel started with, uh, we had 10 women, and each of them gave what we called uh, five-minute micro-talks on the theme of inspiration. Um, so what we did in YouTube was we sort of chopped those up into those five-minute digests. So for people who are looking for, um, you know, something that's a little bit shorter or they really want to look at something a particular woman said, uh, we have those. But then we also did, um, uh, we did save the entire hour and 40-minute long um, presentation. That's fantastic. And there, I'll include a link to that in the show notes found at polygamer.net as well. Oh, yes, that would be wonderful. I can definitely send you those. So what is it that you hope visitors to the museum will get from the Women in Gaming exhibit? I think the one thing, and just to sort of sort of go off on, on this theme that we talked about with with um when we when we had the women in the panel open their talks with with these this theme of inspire that's really what this exhibit is about um whenever we make an exhibit in the museum we're we're sort of asked to come up with a, a one or two words as a takeaway of you know if if you could if you could have the guests come away with with something because um, obviously we can't control how, how art is interpreted. But if we could, what would we want people to come away with? And I pretty quickly decided that my overarching theme was going to be inspiration. One of the, the hardest things for women as they get as, as they try to break into the game industry is a lack of support if they don't already have a have a network around them. Um, you know, if, if they're going into college classes and they're the only woman in, in the, you know, in their game development class, that's very isolating. You know, if they, if they do make it into a studio and, you know, maybe they're the only one of, you know, maybe a handful of women, um, maybe they've experienced some sexual harassment, maybe they've, um, they've just felt ignored. Um, if you don't have that sort of network, that's, that's, that's very isolating, and it's very hard to overcome. So what I'm hoping, since our guests do um, tend to skew towards younger and families, not to say we don't have a lot of adults coming to, especially to the electronic games um, exhibits, but I want all the little girls who walk through that exhibit who have any sort of interest in video games and technology to sort of look at the exhibit and say, wow, there are a lot of women like me who do that. I can do that too. That sort of inspiration is is what I hope people leave with. That'd be fantastic. And I hope that visitors do see all those exemplars, all those models, all those historical precedents that continue up to this day and that they see that. And we start to shift that minority percentage you and I talked about to be more of a majority if possible. I hope so, too. So the Women Gaming's exhibit has so many inspiring women in it, and there is one inspiring woman in gaming that I would love to talk about. In fact, I'm talking to her right now, the curator of the Strong Museum of Play. <laughs> well, thank you. 
<laughs> so how is it that you wound up in the history of gaming? From what I understand, this isn't where you thought your career would necessarily go. No, definitely not. My career path has changed uh, several times since since entering college. When I when I first went to college, I wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to write and take pictures for National Geographic magazine. That's what I wanted to do. That was my dream job. Because I loved writing. And I'm like, well, I suppose I can't. I'm not going to be Stephen King. So I guess I can't make a living off writing novels. So the next best thing is to work for a magazine like National Geographic. And I'll get to travel and I'll get to do all that. I took some photojournalism classes. So I'd be able to back up all my writing with pictures and things like that. And I loved it. And I was gung-ho about it for about two years. And then I'm like, wow the inverted pyramid style of writing is harder than I really thought. And I felt like I didn't have enough scope for the imagination and things like that. So I, I did still graduate with, with a bachelor's degree in journalism, but I, I added a second major. My, um, my minor at the time was history and I loved history so much. And my advisor's like, well, why don't you just turn that into another major? You've got enough time. So I said, okay. And by the time I graduated and I went to grad school, I realized that history was really what I wanted to be doing. Um, I loved, um, I just, I just loved learning about the past. But ironically, for my current job, my love truly was the past. Um, I, I tended to not be interested in classes that that took place, you know, post 1850 or so. Um, I did a lot with um, ancient civilizations. I did um, my my both my undergraduate and graduate dissertations were on um, the history of Japan. Very interested in the intersection of politics and religion and things of that nature. Um, and in fact, I, I taught for a, for a very short period of time. And when I did that, it was basically like. Civilization 101. So basically, you know, the history up to, um, you know, the 1750-1800 um, mark. So that's really where my my passion was. But teaching was not something that I decided I was really cut out to do. Um, I didn't have the patience for it. As much as I loved the research, um, just just being up in front of the classroom was just not something that was really conducive to my personality. So I went to my advisor, that had a fantastic advisor, and I said, you know, I just assume that that was what you do with a history degree is you go on and you get your PhD and you teach. What else can I do? And she said, well, how do you feel about museums? And I'm like, well, I love museums. I, you know, I, I go to them wherever I can. And she's like, well, we've got connections with several local Rochester museums. So let's get you some internships with them. You can do them for credit. So I said, okay. Uh, so I interned at two museums. One was the Genesee Country Village, which um, for those who aren't local to Rochester is basically like our version of Colonial Williamsburg. It's a living history museum. So I interned there. And then the other one was the Strong Museum. Um, I interned with um, J.P. Dyson, who's our, our vice president for exhibits, and also now the iCheck director. iCheck didn't exist when I was um, when I was interning. And between those two internships, I'm like, wow, public history is, this is what I want to do. Like I could, I immediately knew after just those, those two experiences that I had found my niche. And um, I was really lucky 
um, after I graduated because I had because I had interned here. I was able to get um, it was a very entry level position. I was a guest relations host. So basically, you know, the people who take care of the exhibits, you know, we we dust the the glass and, um, you know, pick up after guests and we're there to answer questions and find lost children and basically everything that you need to keep the museum running and keep guests happy and just make it a really great experience for people. And um, I did that for a couple of years. And um, while I was doing that, I was I was lucky enough to make connections with people in the curatorial department. And when a grant position opened up for just cataloging, um, because the museum was taking in so many more objects than they had curators for at the time, they just needed a grant for someone to catalog. Um, I applied and was accepted. And that's kind of how I broke into the the curatorial team. So is that what you would recommend for somebody who wants to go into museum work is that they get bachelor's and master's in whatever area they're interested in, like journalism or history? Things are things are a lot different now, actually. So number one, if I'd known that, that I wanted to do museum work, I probably just would have focused on history at the time. Um, but now a lot of places have museum studies programs that wasn't nearly so widespread as when I was getting degrees. And in fact, a lot of my my colleagues have degrees either in American history or art history or things that are more, um, I don't want to say generic because it's not like they're generic, but it's, it, um, it's become now where you can actually get degrees in museum studies and public history. So for someone who knows that that's what they want to do, I would absolutely go for that. Um, because again, I mean, my my background in ancient Japanese civilization, while helpful and certainly interesting in terms of it taught me how to research and how to write and how to do all of these things that, that I do now, um, that particular background um, isn't as perhaps helpful as to cataloging video games, as you would think. Although, at least I'm still working with Japanese objects, technically. That is true. <laughs> Japanese artifacts, for sure. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, people who are interested in museum work, I would definitely look for, for universities that have public history and museum studies degrees because they're popping up a lot of places now, which is great. One of the reasons I ask is because you and I were in college at the same time about 20 years ago. And at the time, my editor told me that if you want to go into journalism, don't major in journalism, major in what you want to write about. I don't know if that advice is still applicable today or if it's applicable to museum studies, but I just thought I'd throw the idea out there. Yeah, no, I mean, that's certainly an interesting way of looking at it. I mean, I would say if you, so for example, if if you know that you want to work in a museum specifically about, you know, the the history of, you know, U.S. colonization or um, the American Revolution or something like that, certainly a background in American history would be to your benefit. I think that would that would certainly be that would be applicable. A few years ago, again, inspired by the works of Jason Scott, who does not have a degree in this, I thought I would go get one. And I briefly enrolled in a master's of library science program with a specialty in archives. Mm. 
again, that didn't end up being my forte, kind of like teaching wasn't for you. But I thought that might be a useful skill for someone who's interested in digital history preservation, which was my focus. Yes, absolutely. And our um, our archivist and um, our library director and I believe our library cataloger too, I'm pretty sure they all have degrees in in library science and um and I know at least one of them has done work with with digitization as well so absolutely I would say that's valuable too oh good nice to know that if I had just stuck with it I would have been on the right track (laughs) yeah (laughs) as I mentioned and as you mentioned teaching may not have been a good fit and you I think you suggested that you didn't necessarily have the patience for teaching Mm -hmm. I would think that history also requires quite a bit of patience Yes, but it's quite a different kind of patience, I would say. <laughs> I and and this is not to say that I'm not uh, that I'm antisocial or not a people person because that's not that's not true, but um working with objects and working with artifacts, you can take all the time you want to look at an object and it's not going to get um it's not going to get tired of you. It's not going to tell you to hurry up. It's not going to tell you that um you know, you're you're doing it wrong, you know, sort of thing. I love interacting with people. I love interacting with my donors, my vendors, and I do actually get to do some educating usually at a much younger level when we have guests come in or even when I tour university students. But these are all people who want to be here, who are very engaged. And um and while I loved my students and teaching was a very um, it's it's a very worthwhile profession, and I have always had the highest respect for teachers. And I, quite frankly, I came away from teaching with even more respect than I had before. It was it was just not the type of interpersonal um, communication that that was my particular strength. I don't blame you. I used to teach 11th grade English composition, and I now teach graduate studies at Emerson College in Boston. And while I absolutely love both of them with a passion, mm-hmm. they have their challenges. They really do. And, and you know, there were every now and then, you know, you get a student who is so, so fantastic or or who comes to you actually just the opposite, and you're able to help them reach goals. And those people left me so fulfilled and and I was so happy to have experienced that with them. And then other times, which unfortunately was more often, I just you just come home exhausted <laughs> mentally. Right. Yep. So um hats off to you and to every other person out there teaching because you perform an amazing service um that that I am very jealous of. Oh, well, thank you. And, you know, there are different levels and kinds of teaching. There's online teaching, there's adjunct teaching. Mm -hmm. You know, I could never do teaching as a full-time job because it is so demanding and I don't have that stamina. But the class I teach, it meets once a week for four hours and that Mm -hmm. is just the right level for me. Yeah, that sounds pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, I feel like I get to do a lot of educating here. Um, you know, and I get to preserve things for people to use as educational tools for the long haul. So even though I'm not up in front of the classroom, I still feel like I'm doing educating and I'm doing it in a, in a much, in a way that is, is much more conducive to my particular personality. So I get a lot of pleasure out of that too. Oh, absolutely. Museums are invaluable institutions in this country. And here's a statistic that you probably know, but our listeners might not. Which are there more of in this country? Museums, McDonald's, 
or Starbucks? Oh, my goodness. Do you know the answer? I do not. I, I think I would, I mean, I, I would I would hope museums are the answer, but I, my guess is probably Starbucks. There are more museums than there are Starbucks and McDonald's combined. Well, that makes me happy. That makes I know, right? Happy. <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I think there are about 35,000 museums, and Starbucks and McDonald's each have around 15,000. Okay. Well, that gives me some hope. That makes me very happy. Thank you. <laughs> You're quite welcome. I'm glad I could do that for you. Yes. So, Shannon, you and I met several years ago when I went to The Strong, which I've been to a couple of times now, and we've collaborated online with various gaming artifact donations, Apple II donations. Most recently, you popped up on my radar and on the latest episode of the Polygamer podcast due to your appearance in the Women in Gaming anthology that Megan Marie wrote. Yes. Fantastic book. Um, I absolutely love how it turned out. I think it it was beyond a lot of people's expectations, including Megan's. Yes, it's a fantastic book. And as you heard on the latest episode, because you told me you listened to it, she said that when she first approached you, you were a little surprised that she deemed you a good fit for this book. Am I recalling that correctly? Yeah. So basically what happened um, was when we were inducting um, Tomb Raider into the World Video Game Hall of Fame in 2017, um, or I'm sorry, in 2018, we had um, a woman named Katie who was the um, she was the associate brand manager from Crystal Dynamics, which is also where Megan works. As we were just talking about Tomb Raider and Lara Croft, I mentioned you know this is something that um, we're working on this Women in Games exhibit and how excited I am. And she's like, she said, let me put you in touch with with Megan, who's writing this book on on women in games. And I thought, great. Um, I was hoping that maybe I could talk to Megan about making contact with some of these women. Maybe I'd get some donations out of it or, or at least let, let some of these women know um, that the exhibit was happening. Um, so even if they, they didn't have anything to give, maybe they could you know put it out on social media, just get some attention to it, um, maybe give me some advice on things that I was missing. So I was definitely all gung-ho um, about that. Um, and while we were talking about these these things, um, she did. She said, well, why don't you fill out one of the profiles? And I said, me? But I don't work. I, I, I don't develop games. I don't make games. And and part of that, I think, actually going back to our conversation about uh, about my, my prior career might have might have been a throwback to when I was a journalist, where basically it's sort of like I, I write the story. I'm not part of the story. I preserve the past. I preserve video game history. I'm not really a part of it. I think that was sort of my mindset at the time. And it's still a mindset that I think I have despite all of this um, in some cases when I don't think about it too deeply. So I said, you know, I'm happy to fill it out, but I I don't really, I I don't, I'm not going to be offended if you don't use it, if it doesn't fit with what you're doing. But I will say now uh, reading the book, I see that she took such a um, a broad stroke of the video gaming industry. You know, so she, so she has the people who are actually making the games and participating in the industry right now. Um, but she also has a game journalist in there. She had a GameStop manager. Um, you know, she has she has me as as a curator. Um, 
And and that actually made me really excited because it shows all the different ways that the gaming industry really has broken into popular culture, which is ironically one of the defenses that, that we use when people say, well, what makes games so significant? And that it's that it's permeated so much of of our society that it's everywhere. You can't help but notice it or even be a part of it. Um, so quite frankly, I, I learned I learned more about my particular place in the gaming industry from working on that book, and I'm very grateful for that. Oh, that's fantastic. It sounds like one of the skills you need as a curator is the ability to classify things and to put them into various categories. Yeah. And maybe you were viewing gaming as one category when it's actually even more categories. Yeah, and and I mean we we certainly look at at gaming with a broad stroke as well. I mean, you know, we we say to people even when they say I'm not a gamer, you know, we look at them and I'm like, well, do you, do you have a smartphone? Do you ever play solitaire on your computer? You know, what do you you know all of that? And it's like, well, yeah, I I do that sometimes. And it's like, well, guess what? You're a gamer, whether you know it or not. Yeah, and I mean, I I'd always considered myself, um, you know, part of that. But um, and I do, you know, I, I do game on my own as well. But just in terms of of being, you know, if you looking at the table of contents of that book and being being mentioned in the same in the same pages as people like Brenda Romero and Carol Shaw and Amy Hennig, these people who I'm honoring in my exhibit to see my name in the same list is, I mean, not only. Uh, so humbling and, and, you know, makes me feel so honored. Um, but it's also just sort of a reality check that like, wow, you know, this is, I'm so glad that preservation is, is being looked at through the same lens of importance as the game development itself. Uh, I'm glad that, that we're being seen as, as such a valuable um, service and institution. And that just, that really made me um, feel so, so happy and very gratified as well you should because it's very important work you're doing you've mentioned so many names like roberta williams donna bradley carol shaw and it's due to the work of historical organizations such as yours that we know these names it's not otherwise they would just be forgotten to the mist of time because like oh this game that nobody's played in years this game that there's no source code of no documentation no design documents you have all those things and people see these things being preserved and they learn about them whether they're traveling from all around the world as researchers or just as tourists stopping in rochester new york yeah and it's um i think in some ways it's almost sort of like like working at Disneyland, like after a while, even though what you do, you know, in the back of your mind is so important and so magical and brings joy to so many people. At the end of the day, it's still the place that you go to work at every day. And that's why I love giving tours to people into the museum. And especially when we go down in collections areas, because seeing their expression, when we open up those doors and they get to see, you know, the other 90% of our collection and how transfixed and amazed they are, that's every time I do that, that serves as a reminder to me of like, yeah, I really work at an amazing place. And I'm, we're, we have such important collections and I'm so proud to be a part of that. So getting reminders like that is, is just really, it's, it's a good feeling. <laughs> Absolutely. And very validating to let you know that what you are doing does matter. Sometimes you need that from an external source. Otherwise, you, 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 you question the impact. Yeah, absolutely. 
Remind our listeners where they can find The Strong and iCheck, both online and off. We are located in the middle of uh, downtown Rochester, New York. So if you are ever in the area in upstate New York, we would love to have you stop by. Let us know that you're here. Um, and if you are not in the area or can't make it, you can find us on museumofplay.org. And um, if you go into our About se- section, there's a, a large uh, landing page for iChag and also the Women in Games Initiative and um, all the other awesome things that we're doing. Fantastic. And again, there will be links to all those in the show notes. Now, I have just one last question for you. All right. The Women in Gaming book outed you as a Star Trek fan. And you may not know that I actually host two podcasts. Besides Polygamer, I also have a weekly Star Trek podcast all about Discovery. Oh my gosh, I didn't know that. No! My friend Sabriel Massa and I co-host it. It's called Transporter Lock. And I would love to know what you think of Star Trek Discovery, season two of which premieres just in a, a week. So, you know, Discovery has been a very... um a very validating experience for me as, as a Star Trek fan. I completely admit that I am a very old school Trekkie. The original series is my favorite cheesiness and all. Um, and I was less than impressed with the JJ Abrams reboot. Um, and discovery. And I know there's been a lot of contention about it. Um, discovery to me is definitely bringing back the, the feel, the overarching feel of what I, I, I think Star Trek is. It, it brings, it's grittier for sure, but it still leaves you with that bit of hope at the end that there's more out there and that humanity has so far to go, but we're going to get there and we're going to be in a better place. Wow. I, I don't think I've heard that particular interpretation, perhaps because among our generation, in my experience, most of us got started with TNG, and it's rare to find somebody our age who actually prefers TOS. Uh, now, see, that actually goes back to the history part. My my father, who is um, who is also, he's, he's a huge history buff, and he gave me the um, my love of history. I did. I started with, with Next Generation. And when he saw that I was interested in it, he's like, uh-uh, no, you've got, you've got 20 years, 25 years of, of catch-up to do. <laughs> at the time, uh, reruns of the original series were airing um, on Fox at midnight. I have very clear recollections of this. And we programmed our VCR. That's how far back this was. And um, we recorded all of those episodes for me to watch. So he made me go in order. And because of that, I came away with, with such an appreciation for how Star Trek developed. And, and I'm so grateful for that. But yeah, no, the original is always going to be first for me. And I really do feel like Discovery is tapping back into that for the first time and since probably, uh, I would say maybe Deep Space Nine for me. Wow. Yeah, I see how DS9 and Discovery, they're both a little gritty and a little yep. dark. Uh, I'm surprised that nothing in between those two met your high standard, though. For example, the fourth season of Enterprise. So Enterprise had some gems. Enterprise had some absolute gems. I actually, I'm, I'm a huge, um, and one of the reasons I probably love Discovery so much is I'm a huge fan, like so many people are, of the Mirror Universe. And, yes, and yes. I actually think that um, um, Enterprise had uh, the best interpretation of the Mirror Universe. Um, I loved 
absolutely loved what they did with that. So there were absolutely some gems in, in Enterprise and also in Voyager. Um, I would never deny that, but just sort of as an overarching series with characters that I could truly bond with and really, really get um, get that feel. Um, DS9 was really the last time that that happened. I wanted to, getting back to the sort of women in games, I really, really, really wanted to like Voyager um, with, with Janeway as the first female captain, and I did. It's not like I didn't like her, but I just, I never got that same, that quite same bonding um, out of that that I did from the earlier shows. So I'm actually very pleased with Discovery. Yeah, the way I think I would put my two favorite Star Trek series is TNG is the ship I would want to live on, but DS9 is the show with the better stories. Yeah, I think a lot of a lot of people who have been Trekkies for for a long time sort of look at TNG as this is the archetype. This is this is where Star Trek sort of became Star Trek, really, and I can say that without malice even though the original series is my favorite. Um part of that is nostalgia and I can completely acknowledge that. Um, but TNG has the heart um, represented best, I think. But DS9 brought in so much of that sort of really human conflict. Um, they weren't afraid to go there. And I think that's what made it sort of, it was sort of the black sheep of the Star Trek family for a while um, until Enterprise came along, I guess. But, uh, but yeah, I think those were some really powerful shows. So I'm sure you're looking forward to TOS characters showing up in the second season of Discovery. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm interested. Um, you know, I obviously, I have extraordinarily high standards for Spock because who wouldn't? Leonard Nimoy was an amazing actor as well as an amazing human being. So I think those are, those are extraordinarily big shoes to, um, to fall into. And Zachary Quinto did the best job that he could. As I, as I said, I was not a fan of the, the Abrams verse at all. Um, so I'm, I'm really interested. I've, I've liked the comments that I've seen so far about uh, the, the director saying, this is not the Spock that you're used to, but it's a Spock that is going to grow into the one that you recognize. And, um, and, and I'm, I'm excited to see that. We'll see. Yeah, I, I'm really looking forward to the second season. I loved the first season, and I look, am looking forward to talking about it on Transporter Lock. I hope you'll tune in. Uh, yes, I absolutely am. It is always <laughs> awesome to find a fellow Trekkie. We make the world a better place, I like to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are inspired by Star Trek to make the world a better place. Yes, exactly. Right. Well, Shannon, thank you so much for your time. This has been a lovely conversation. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. It's been great. This has been Polygamer, a GameBits production. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at polygamer.net. You know, I did an interview a couple of years ago with the Charles Babbage Institute, and they said that one of the things they collect are the unedited audio recordings of interviews. Oh, my goodness. That's got to be fascinating. It must be. I mean, from your perspective, I am sure that is fascinating. From my perspective, it's terrifying. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes, I can see that. Yes. Because, you know, the po- the podcast that you and I are going to release is going to be edited. Would you really want somebody hearing what it sounded like before I edited it? 
I mean, certainly as as someone being interviewed or even from your perspective being the interviewer, definitely not. But as a historian, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess it depends on which hat I'm wearing. 